My lord, you gave your word to the witch. And she sees too much. I said I would not harm them, and I shall not. But Arrakis is Arrakis. And the desert takes the weak. My desert. My Arrakis. Why do? We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Brown. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Welcome to Sorted Cinema. This week we are talking about Denis Villeneuve's long, long, long awaited first part of his adaptation of Frank Herbert's 1965 novel Dune. The first you'll recall was David Lynch's uh, regretted by him adaptation from the 80s starring Kyle MacLachlan. Then we had the failed Joe Duraski adaptation, which was itself the subject of a feature length film. And now we have this version starring uh, the ever present Timothee Chalamet, along with Rebecca Ferguson, Oscar Isaac, Josh Brolin, Dave Bautista, a bunch more other people, uh, Javier Bardem, Jason Momoa, etc. Uh, we're going to hear a clip and come back and talk about it with special guest Mike Warby. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? A boy. <laughs> Duncan, can I trust you with something? Yes, always. You know that. I've been having dreams about a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you. Put on some muscle? I did? No. We are House Atreides. There is no call we do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring peace to Arrakis. House Atreides accepts! I know you. There's only a way of hanging my mind. You need to face your fears. 
Welcome back. My name is Simon. I'm joined by Ricky D. Super stoked, Simon. I'm super stoked. I love this director. I love this movie. Can't wait to talk about it. Well, damn. All right. We got energy out the gate. Uh, Mike. Mike Warby is also here. I love this book. I like this movie. And I also love this director. All right. Hey, can I just say something really quick, Simon? I, I have to admit right away, I'm completely biased because I'm from Montreal the director's from Montreal. I've loved every single one of his movies since his very first movie, Maelstrom, which is, I still think, his masterpiece, his best movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's the best movie released in 2000. And I'm also completely head over heels in love with one of the actors. And an innocent kind of love. Like, I wouldn't stalk the dude, you know? Right. But I'm just saying. Hold on. Are, are we are we, are we we building up to the sequel of Call Me By Your Name? Are you taking over for Army Hammer, Rick? <laughs> You know, you know what I love about Timothy Chalamet. You're gonna, you're gonna think I'm crazy, but it's the way he moves. Chalamet, yeah. Chalamet, ding dong. He's walking sex, dude. Like, is he? this dude? The way he swerves, the way he moves, the way he turns his head, the way his hips move. It's the way he moves. No, no, that that's just the way they make them walk across the sand so that they don't attract the sandworms. <laughs> that's got nothing to do with him being sexy. I noticed it first and call me by my name, the way he dances, the way he moves. There's something about the way this guy moves. He's like a cat. He's like, it's like, I swear to God, like you ever watch a cat, the way a cat moves, they don't yeah. move around like dogs. They have a very like sexy sway to them. Well, that's up to you. <laughs> I haven't noticed my cats being sexy at any point when I've had cats, but you know, oh, they think they're sexy, it. Simon. They, yeah, I can see how they think they're sexy. And, and I saw the movie cats, and those cats also thought they were sexy. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't really translate. <laughs> yeah, they looked weird. So, uh, Mike, you're mm. the expert. Yeah. That's why that's, you're here. Yes, that's my that segue. is why I'm here. <laughs> oh, sorry, Simon. I guess I, I, I think what Ricky was going to ask is, you know, as someone who's read the books, be, thank you for your service, by the way. Um, yes, I try. And, uh, <laughs> and also sat through Lynch's previous adaptation, which I confess, even as a Lynch head, I have started and never finished. Um, I just, I just, I can't, I can't folks. And, and David Lynch doesn't blame me by the way. He hates that fucking movie. Uh, but anyway, a, a, as someone who's experienced all this previous Dune media, what were your hopes for, for this version uh, in terms of something that, uh, what were you hoping to get out of this version? And, and did you get it? I guess. Just that I hope, I just hope that it would live up to, cause it's a great book. Like Dune is basically like the Lord of the Rings of sci-fi. It is like really long and kind of boring sometimes, but if you <laughs> if you if you power through the like slow parts, it you'll get one of the richest, deepest, and most meaningful science fiction stories ever. Like if you read Dune, I mean you'll probably get it from watching both movies as well. Maybe not quite to that extent, but when I read Dune, I was like, oh, this is where George Lucas got Star Wars, and this is where mm -hmm. George R. R. Martin got Game of Thrones. Because the like the warring houses and the endless stabbing in the back and the endless plotting, like that's just Game of Thrones. So when I read this, I was like, obviously George R. R. Martin read this, and that's part of where the endless backstabbing, like essentially House Harkonnen and House um, Atreides or the Lannisters and the Starks, 
Yeah, so that's the that was the one thing I got from reading the book. And then the other thing I got was like desert planet tapped into a sacred power. You're the chosen mm-hmm. one. There's all these people who have come before who've had this power, but you've got the best version of this power. You will bring balance to the universe. Again, that's basically Star Wars. And if yeah. you re- I won't spoil what happens in the second book, Dune Messiah. Dude, you just but, need to read the title of the book to know what happens. But more of it, like more Star Wars stuff happens in the mm. second book that's like that you're like oh okay george lucas just read this and he basically just ran this through his printing press and made star wars sorry do you mean paul who's said to be the messiah is not the messiah in the book which is called the messiah the second yes book? I, I don't want to spoil it but think of it like how darth vader was supposed to bring balance to the force and eventually yeah. he does but just not in the way you think that's basically what happens in the dune books just really quick, when this book was actually released in 1963, 64, right away, 65, right away, they wanted to make a movie out of it. But clearly, mm-hmm. they just didn't have the the resources and the special effects and the CGI and the computers that we have nowadays. Now, they always said the movie was impossible to adapt, which we all know that's like bullshit because like, look at Lord of the Rings. And plus, like you said, Simon Lynch did adapt it, even if it was a failed adaptation in the 80s. But, you know, you talk about how this movie has influenced everything from Game of Thrones to Star Wars. And I kind of feel bad about Dune, the actual franchise, in a way, because, like, people don't realize this. And so now it's like everyone thinks it's copying Game of Thrones and Star Wars. But but really, it came first. That said, I could not help but think of, and I'm sure a lot of people have mentioned this. Uh, I haven't read any reviews, by the way, but uh, Lawrence of Arabia mm. and also Dust Devil the the amazing movie which no which very few people have seen by richard uh, director richard stanley yeah the same guy who did um who did hardware in terms of like the actual look of the movie um very much dust devil the uh i have to say i had no like i said i i hadn't watched uh the full dune film original um i had seen a bunch of dune memes thanks to a friend of mine who is a very big dune fan uh, but that was basically most of my exposure to Dune. As for my, I never to- would have watched the Lynch version myself if I hadn't read the book. I just I yeah. happened to have just read the book recently, like last year in my book club. So then I just the Lynch version just popped up on my TV. So I recorded it and watched it just out of kind of like curiosity. And honestly, the thing the Lynch version has over this version is that it feels like a complete movie. Mm-hmm. I just want to say, do not want to blame the movie for the decisions made by the marketing team or the studio. Like, because I know a lot of people are complaining that they feel this is not an incomplete movie and they feel that they were misled and the average, like, you know, the, the trailers to the posters didn't actually state that this is like half of a movie. But I don't think that's the fault of the filmmaker or anyone who worked hard on making this movie. No, they were obviously just worried this thing was going to bomb, especially since it's cost like. No, I mean, it cost a lot of money and it's being released in the middle of a pandemic. So I think they're worried that if you call it part one, that people are just people just are not going to bother. OK, they were so worried they were going to lose money that they decided to release the movie on HBO Max the very same day they released it in theaters. And also they have this enormous cast. They put in so much money to the movie and they actually signed a contract with the director and the actors to make two movies. So I kind of feel like. I'm not going to say a lie, but I think it's not necessarily completely 100% true. It was definitely a bit of a careful illusion on their part. And I think we can all basically agree um, that this is not a full story. It is not a complete. No, that is the biggest. 
I, I think almost anybody who sees this movie, no matter how much they like it, like some people are saying this is a 10 out of 10 and all the power to you, but I don't feel like half a movie is it, you can, I don't know. Like you, like we've all, I've seen fellowship of the ring is a great example. Like fellowship of the ring is one third of a story, but it still feels like a complete story. Same with, you can look at empire strikes back as one third of a story but it still feels like a, it has a start and a finish. The problem with Dune part one, as the pops up the second you start watching it, is that it doesn't feel like it's, it just feels like you, the movie just gets to a point and then the credits just happen and you're like, huh? Well, like, the thing it, is, Mike, it it's, it's about when the movie ends, not about the idea of splitting it into two or three films. Cause like, exactly. Said, they did that with Lord of the Rings. So Simon, do you think they ended they ended this movie like part one at the right moment. And if not, could you maybe offer some opinion on when you would have ended the movie? Yeah. Well, as someone who hasn't read the book, I can't see. Um, I would say like, I see I've read, I have read the book and I would say like where they ended it is the natural part to end it because like there's two arcs to the book. The arc, the first arc is house of Trades shows up. They start building up the resources and then they get betrayed and then their house falls. And then Paul goes into the desert with his mother and they start training with the, um, what the, Fremen. the Fremen. Yeah. And then that is, and then there's actually a time jump from there. So that's why it's the perfect place to end. Cause at a certain point, Paul's training and yada, yada, yada. And then they, they do like a couple of years time jump or whatever. And that's where the story picks back up. So it's the perfect place to do it. They just needed to like invent something. Like here's a great example. The two towers, the book ends with the fight with Shelob in the, in the tunnel and the present and the presumption that Frodo is dead. The movies had to work around that or else the hobbits wouldn't have had anything to do in the third movie. So what they did was invent the storyline where Frodo goes to that city and then almost the ring wraith gets him and all this stuff happens. They invented a way for it to, create an ending because if they just ended it without you see what i mean uh i don't know why they did why they put the 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 split where they did um i'm not qualified to answer that question i'm only qualified to tell you that it doesn't land very well my guess (laughs) my guess is that it's to confirm to the audience that paul's uh powers of prescience are real exactly see in the book they do that in a way better way because you know like there's that scene in the movie where he says to his mom, like you and the you and the um, what are they called? The the Benedict Benedict Arnold's the Benny Jesuit. Yeah, there's so many made up terms. It's hard to keep track of the Benny. All Gesserit. terms are made up. Like, like, come on. Yeah, he's like <laughs> true, but he's like you know he's like what you guys made me into with your planning and yada yada yada. There's a, that scene is like yeah. I wish it's so hard to translate the way things are seen said in the book into real life but that's part in the book where paul's mind opens up and he starts to see all the different futures and he feels like his brain is like breaking that is like you can't it's so hard to translate that on the screen but that is supposed to be that moment but instead they opted for the easy answer by just having um cheyenne show up and being like da 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 you know are you qualified, Simon, to tell our listeners no. what this movie is about? Okay, so I'll Mike, do, I'll, are I'll, you do my, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my Let best. Let me start, and you can continue. Okay. okay. From my understanding, and I'm assuming this applies to the movie because it applies to the book, 
it's set in a year doesn't wh- matter whatever like like 20,000 years into the future yeah it doesn't matter humanity basically overthrew and destroyed all human made intelligent machines like robots computers ai that try to kill there's people. already been two apocalypses basically yes right and now people live in an interstellar existence without ai so yeah. that is very important because the reason why I mentioned that is because I want to talk about the production values, the set, the design, the costumes, et cetera, later. But the point is everything in this movie, despite the fact that it takes place 20,000 years into the future, feels like something that we are familiar with, be it the way they dress, the helicopters, et cetera, et cetera. And what I like about the movie, and I think you won't disagree, Simon, is that the movie doesn't really spend too much time on exposition. Right. It, it informs viewers very quickly about the important facts and details, but it doesn't talk down to an audience. It doesn't assume that the audience is dumb. It doesn't waste any time. Um, it, it, it's I, I, I like the way it, you know, for example, like the spice. Right. We learn, I think, within like the first five minutes of the movie that the spice is the most valuable thing in not the planet, but the universe, because mm-hmm. it's a substance that's used for uh interstellar travel i believe right it's sort of like gasoline or oil but they yeah. can actually travel throughout the galaxy it's, and it's you can basically also get like super what if lsd it. also powered your car yes yeah what if you could what if alcohol what if you poured alcohol right into the fuel canister of your car also right so you, you can get high on it right for sure yes and i mean this book was written in the early 60s so i kind of understand why there it, it has sort of like that element where the spice you know sort of like sort of like you mentioned lsd yeah, but that's the that's the genius of um, you know I give Denis Villeneuve a lot of credit. I don't love a lot of his movies. Um, there's really only a couple that I even really like. Um, I think I, I think Dune's one of the better. I ones. love almost every movie I've seen. I, every movie he's made is amazing. The other ones I don't. Even the ones okay. I don't love. All right, let's let Simon talk. Okay, sorry, 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 sorry. Later. Simon. Continue. <laughs> Simon's quest to talk. <laughs> okay. Uh, however, I give I do give him a lot of credit for uh being a canny marketer and someone who knows his audience and who and who kind of has a good sense he has kind of has his finger on the pulse and i think uh whether or not he knows it and i i kind of suspect that he does you know everyone's getting stoned now everyone is a stoner now if this is the time you know all the sleep albums are getting reissued you know all the all the stoner culture stuff is coming back and yeah, but this uh, is more like psychotropic effects not like smoking weed it doesn't. It, it's it all goes together, and also people are doing a lot of hallucinogens. Are, are you kidding me? People are doing more hallucinogens than ever. I promise you. <laughs> okay, but back to the plot really quick. So, sure. there's this character played by Oscar Isaac, good actor, right? I think he's okay. He plays Duke Leto. Is that his name? I cannot yes. pronounce their last name. Mike, how do you pronounce their last name? Atreides. He's the head of the house, and he's he has been tasked by the Emperor to go to. A different planet. By the way, I didn't catch on upon the first viewing that this was like a different planet. Like, call me stupid, but it, I watched this movie three times this week. By the way, amazing movie. We got to talk about how amazing this movie is. So he's asked to go to live on a different planet, and he's tasked with taking care of the spice that can be mined on this specific planet. Right. So his goal is to make contact with the are they called Freeman or Fremen? Fremen. 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 The men and women who basically inhabit this planet, which is called. Arrakis. He's not really. Let me let me just I, let me just take over, Rick. I can do this really fast. House Atreides is one of the most powerful houses. Like imagine houses for from a medieval kingdom, but it, each one has their own planet or whatever instead. 
of their own kingdom. Like the Lannisters. So, yeah. So now he's they're the, these guys are basically the Starks, and they've risen up to the point where they deserve a promotion. They're like the Starks so crossed have, with the Mormons because they have their own. Yeah. Planet. So the yes. <laughs> so the Emperor um, basically promotes them to take over for the uh, House Harkonnen, yeah. which is supposed to be failing at this time, right? But really, it's a ploy from the Emperor. Or how much spoilers are we doing here? Up uh, until the just, end of this movie, just don't spoil the book. Okay, so it really it's a ploy from the Emperor because they fear that House of Trade is getting is getting too strong and that they're now a threat to the Emperor. So really, they what they say is they're promoting them to take over for the Harkonnens, but really they're working with the Harkonnens to stab them in the back because they're afraid House Atreides has too much power and too much influence, and they want to destroy them. Now, I'm just going to cut in really quick. So the reason why I was confused upon watching the movie for the first time is because this is a planet which water is a valuable resource because there's no water to be found for, like, ever. Like, you know, you can walk around for, like, hours and hours, and you're in the middle of a desert, right? But then we have these mm -hmm. shots where they're on a different planet, and it's, like, raining, or they're next to, like, a waterfall. And so whose planet is that? Yeah, they start on the Atreides planet where it's just their normal planet where they already have um well no, where they already where like that's their place. They like that's already their kingdom. And Actually, but they're taking this I have a question their job about is to take over this other kingdom essentially. But wait, wait, sorry, but my question is why would they go to a planet in which water is so scarce that no one can basically drink water when because, they live on a planet with water? It's supposed to be a promotion. That's what kind why of promotion like, is that? <laughs> well, that's why because because spice is the most powerful thing in the universe. So if you have control of spice, you have control of the universe. So that's why they see it as a, as a promotion because they know how important spice is. It's like if it's like if I get it, I get it. You know, yeah. You know, it's like the Iraq War. You go to Saudi Arabia not because you want to live in the desert, because but because the desert has all the oil. You know. Right. Okay, Simon. What's your question? My question is, this was actually one of, uh, this is a question by way of um, one of my problems with the movie. Are there people who live on the Atreides planet other than like soldiers and sycophants? Like the, the thing. Presumably, was, yes. The thing that I kept trying to figure out is like, what is the life of an average person in the universe of Dune? Like, I, I think one of the advantages of the Star Wars setup is that you get, you get introduced to uh, Luke as just a farm boy and you see, okay, there's farm boys and there's trade. And there's, you know, this whole little economy. And then, of course, you see it destroyed. Whereas you never, you're always in the ivory tower, basically, in this film, up until you meet the Fremen, who are themselves their own little clan who seem to not represent mainstream society. Um, so, if there is such a thing. Anyway, I didn't always get a strong sense of, of what life was like in, in this uh, in this galaxy, except, of course, if you were, uh, the this universe is uh, equivalent of a prince. Well, see, that's, that's where the Game of Thrones comparison comes from, though, right? Because in Game of Thrones, you spend most of your time with the royalty and with the upper houses, and then occasionally you see these snippets of what everybody else is dealing with. Sure. Yes, but um, just going back to the actual main plot and the main characters of this movie, so this man has a wife and a child. Of course, a child is Paul, played by Timothy Not Chalamet. his wife. She is not his wife. Not his wife. You're correct. Which I only realize upon second viewing because he says at one point i should have married you and i was like confused i'm yeah. like what do you mean you should have married her to, why uh, is that line important to borrow always sunny uh parlance she's his whoa 
<laughs> it's yeah. Speaking of she, her name is Lady Jessica. She's played by the great Rebecca Ferguson. Doctor Sleep. Yes, but okay. How do you so pronounce? Good. Okay, she she's like a witch, and she's part of some sort of like the, cult. The, she's they're they're, the they're the Jesser, fucking Jedi. All right, called. that's what they are. It's a pretty kick ass name. So she's yeah. Well, you mentioned Jedi. She basically is like a Jedi. She's the Jedi before Jedi before Star Wars was ever made. She's got and they made the powers. perfect Jedi. Yeah, and instead exactly. of the Force, it's the voice. Um, you know, and uh, Ricky, you were saying that you felt bad for Denis Villeneuve and the and the and the filmmakers in a sense because. Uh, this is like, you know, the original coming back after all the pretenders to the throne have already had it. Mm-hmm. Had yeah. to go at yeah. it. But I still think they you, you kind of know what the playing field is when you're playing on it. It's not like they don't know Star Wars exists. It's not like they don't know Game of Thrones exists. But I, to which I would say, I think the the imagery in the film, uh, I think a lot of it is really effective. I love the use of scale. Um, I actually really like I disp- I think that the choice to have so much of the movie dominated by these sort of browns and grays so that it can be broken up a little by the more psychedelic colors that come in as uh, as the visions increase. I think that was great. But I do think that a lot of the specific imagery, unfortunately, does end up feeling too similar to especially Star Wars imagery. Obviously, stuff like, you know, Oscar Isaac hanging around does not help with that. But um I spent a lot of time thinking about other movies, unfortunately. So he also hired the cinematographer who worked on Rogue One, the Star Wars film, and The Mandalorian, which, by the way, The Mandalorian, most of that movie takes place in the desert, right? Mm -hmm. And it doesn't help that he also, and I love Timothy Chalamet. He's amazing. But I could not help but think of Hayden Christensen in Star Wars Episode One in terms of like his look. It, like I mean, there there are specific shots here, and I'm not going to do this because I don't actually get paid to do this, and I have like too many things to do in my life. But I'm sure you can <laughs> go back and watch that first, uh, well, not the first, but that fourth Star Wars movie, Episode One, right? And you could take specific shots of Hayden Christensen in that movie and put them side by side with Timothy Chalamet in this movie, and they're so similar. Like, there's one shot specifically where you know when the little um what is it like a like I don't know if it's a spider, it's like a hunter, and it goes to assassinate yeah. him. So when yeah. that like spider assassin goes to assassinate Paul, there's this one camera shot, for example, where he turns his head and he looks like it look it look, it's so similar and so uncanny to a shot in the Star Wars film. It's because George Lucas ripped off Star Wars from Dune. There's there's even a part in like the prequel trilogy where one of those things tries to kill Padme the same way. Yes, I know, but I'm I'm, I'm just I yes, but what I'm saying here is that. At the same time, Denis Villeneuve ripped off George Lucas or at least paid homage to that film and the earlier Star Wars films because it's not about what's happening in the frame or in the story. It's about just the actual shot compositions and the fact that this dude, like Timothy Chalamet, like he could have been cast as Anakin, right? Like he has like apart from the fact that like Hayden Christensen has blonde hair and he has like dark hair, they have kind of like similar looks, you know, so like I, there's all these things about this movie, like, you know, there I mean, I joked around on Slack and I was like, hey, Mike, who's the actor that played Marlon Brando in this movie? You know, because like there are scenes in this movie that are clearly lifted from Apocalypse Now. Like that is not a mistake. That is intentional. There are scenes that are very similar to 2001 A Space Odyssey, Red Desert. I already mentioned Lawrence of Arabia. I already mentioned Dust Devil, although Dust Devil, I'm not sure if Denis Villeneuve is a fan of the movie, but 
clearly there's similarities. I mean, there is um, fucking Persona, the Bergman movie. Like, there's a lot of cinematic influences. Like, I mean, I watched this movie three times, and the more and more I watch it, the more I'm like, oh, that's this movie. Oh, that's this movie. Oh, that's this movie, right? So, yes, it, 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 it sucks that in a way that there's all of these movies that took and borrowed from the actual original source material, Dune, the novels, the books, and we got movies like Star Wars, and this movie's not going to, or the book, the series, the franchise is not going to get credit from a lot of people because they won't know any better. But at the same time, this director also borrowed from his favorite filmmakers, including Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg, by the way. Uh, I guess my question for you guys would be like, because I, I do think that in a, in a lot of ways, the film is a complete triumph in terms of, you know, boiling down really difficult source material into a pretty digestible format despite, you know, being cleaved in two, which we can continue to talk about later if we like. Um, I think in terms of actually getting this done in a way that was not only digestible, but also has proven successful, partially I think that's just, you know, to do with when it was released. I think it was destined to be successful. But, um, you know, my question would be, did, were, were you guys, like, moved by the film? Did, did you feel Did you feel for and about the characters? Because to me, that was what was lacking much of the time was the... Uh, I, I totally agree. I, I think... It is a very... Sorry, go on. I, I, I thought you were finished. Sorry, continue. Uh, I'll, I'll be quick. Um, especially because we're... Intro- I think one of the issues is that we're just introduced to so many characters um, as a result of you know having to set up this universe, many of whom do not even survive this film. Um, and I think even before that happens, it feels like we've barely gotten to know them. Um which uh, I think is just a, probably a product of trying to please everyone uh, at home, all the book readers of whom there are an absurd legion, um, as well as you know trying to please everyone at once. And I think the movie mostly does a very good job of that. But I think uh, to me, that was what was sacrificed uh, at the altar. Honestly, the book is very stoic. Most of the characters are very stoic. Like, Duncan Idaho is the character with the most personality in both the book and the movie. And even he's not, like, brimming with personality. He's, like, he's got kind of an adventurous spirit or whatever. But most of the characters in Dune are very, like, stoic and logical and practical. Um, Duncan Idaho is one exception. Baron Harkonnen is another. who's Because he's very bombastic and he's, you know, pretty upset all the time. Um, there's a character who you're supposed to meet already in this, but they're saving him for the second one, which is kind of a strange decision. Like the, 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 the Dave Batista character is almost non-existent in the book. Mm-hmm. They pumped him up and made him a bigger part here. So he could be like a real villain. The real like villain villain who's is the, is the other son of uh, Baron Harkonnen who's going to, I guess, be introduced in the second one. So I'm also going to agree, but I kind of like it. And here's why, because I think the reason why we don't have any sort of like emotional attachment to, say, for example, the main character is, I don't know, like, I mean, he does have a journey with his mom, but you know, when you watch most movies that are epic, like sci-fi adventures or like, you know, anything from Marvel to Star Wars, there's always like the main protagonist and he has like, a relationship with his sidekick, you know, be it like Captain America and Bucky or Han Solo mm-hmm. and, and Mark um, Luke Skywalker. And in this movie, we don't have that relationship except for you mentioned him, Mike Duncan. The problem is we get very few scenes with Paul and Duncan. And a lot of people have criticized the performance by 
Jason Momoa, but I actually like his performance because he's 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 he's, he's, he's fun. Yeah. And he's way more scaled back than he's been in a lot of other movies, which is, you know, they're not like having him like in Justice League where he's like, yeah, and like, hell yeah, and like stuff like that. You know, they've scaled they've scaled him back, which is I think this movie could have used more of those two in more scenes because I think that would make audiences care more for both Paul and Duncan. And especially when Duncan does die. Like you would care more about that scene and that character because I don't know. I just, I, I feel like he could have and should have been the heart of at least the first movie because then Zendaya, she only appears at the end of the movie. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like that's the problem with the first film. I think is that we don't have that relationship to latch onto because the, the, the relationship between him and his mom is kind of like weird. Um, and I'm not entirely sure if I even like, like, the character that his mom plays like i think she's a fantastic actress but i i have mixed feelings about her but you know this we we, we mentioned lord of the rings and game of thrones and star wars and it's it's this sci-fi epic in which it's a battle for power well that's the other game of thrones thing here is that there are no real like in dune there are no real good characters and no real bad characters. Like there are characters who are kind of well, more good than other characters and more bad than other characters, but every character has shades of gray to them. Mm. Like, like Paul, you can't look at Paul Atreides and be like, he's a pure hero. He's not, I mean, no, but the, Har- the Harkonnen are pretty fucking. It's obvious, but that's how the Lannisters were. And then you kind of get to know the Lannisters and then you're like, oh, I see why they're like the way they are. Do right. we kind of and get to know the Harkonnen, though? I don't think that we Not do. at all. You, no. no, no, but in the that's more of a book thing. Yeah, sure. You get to know well, what the in, Harkonnens are like and yeah. what their deal is. Yeah. The problem is the Harkonnens don't have uh what's his name? Um, They don't have a... T- there's no Tyrion in House Harkonnen. Yeah. That's the problem. Well, it's just... Sorry, the point Sorry. I'm trying to make is that a good portion of the movie is a battle of power, right? Between the emperor yes. and uh, I forget the name, the house of fill in the blank. It's Atreides? a, yes, it's a political allegory. You know, it's a sci-fi adventure, but it's also a movie with a strong environmental message, I would say, but more importantly, it's a coming of age film. Like this is a coming of age story, but that's why I feel the movie feels incomplete like he has these visions from the very start of the movie. And when we get to the end of the movie, the only thing that really changes drastically about Paul is the fact that he's forced to kill a man. And I felt that that scene was like, it should have felt more important and, mm. and, and it didn't like, I, I, it just should have like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. It, it, it was like a, 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 a a, a part in a, a moment in this dude's life where it's going to completely change him as a person. I feel like, despite the fact that Mike said it was the natural stopping point for this film, I think there's just no way for it not to come out like a bit of a wet fart. That that is our climax is basically his duel with this non-character who we know is not a important. character that nobody cares yeah, about. Exactly, um, who is not you know our our savior hero guy. Um, I feel like th- the only way to fix it, unfortunately, I think would be just make make the movie a little longer. Go into the go into the flash forward or whatever you want to call it and tease the start of that. However you want to do that. Um, yeah. Like they could have cliffhangered it. I don't know. It's just, it's like, it's a pretty good movie. Like I know we've been pretty critical of it 
Whoa, whoa, whoa I love this there. movie. I love this movie. I know, but we've but in terms of like this entire conversation has been fairly critical, despite the fact that we I think we all agree that this is a pretty good movie. Okay, okay, let me give you an example. This is gonna be a weird example, but it's like listening to an album from one of your favorite rock artists from like the 70s, and ha- it's like one of those psychedelic classic rock records where you put on the record and it's like it puts you under a spell, like you're in a trance and you kind of just zone out because of the pacing and the rhythm of the record, right? It's not like it's not like listening to a record where every single track sounds differently. So as soon as it gets to the next track, you automatically are alerted and you wake up. You're you're out of your trance, right? Dark side of the moon. Thank you. Right. Something like that. And and the thing about this movie, it's about the pacing, it's about the sound design, it's about the soundtrack, which we should talk about eventually, and it's about the the mood. And it's consistent from start to finish. There's very little moments where it breaks that rhythm. That's true. The moments in which it breaks the rhythm is when we get uh, scenes with Paul and Duncan, for example. But there's a specific rhythm, which thematically does link to the device called a thumper, which is used to evade the enormous deadly sandworms, which, by the way, are amazing. But there's a rhythm to the movie. There's a rhythm to death. There's a rhythm to life. There's a rhythm to the way they move. And I think the problem a lot of people have with this movie from listening to feedback is a lot of people say that they zoned out. And I totally get it. That's why I watched a movie three times this week. Because the first time I did zone out. Like I zoned out. Like I started daydreaming, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just. The, the the rhythm of the movie and i think it would help if you see it on the big screen to be fair and i think for a lot of people who are watching at home not that i have anything against watching a movie at home on, on your computer or your tv and hbo max especially during a pandemic but i think you can feel a little bit more comfortable in your own space in your own in your own home watching a movie like this and kind of zoning out yeah i think for me i think there's two big challenges to adapting this story and I think one you already mentioned is the characters are very stoic. Like a, it's a very stoic movie. There's not a lot of big emotions in this movie. But then a lot also, like you said, a, I mean, not like you said, but people are tend, tend to zone out. And I think it's because you spend so much time in the desert. Like yeah. it's not like a lot of the movie looks the same, despite the fact that the plot is moving forward. A lot of the movie looks the same and a lot of the story feels so it's way easier to take that in in book form than it is because like when you're watching a story move forward, like again, think of Lord of the Rings, you watch them move from place to place, from place to place. This movie almost entirely takes place in the same kind of environment. And, and, and that's, I think that's part of what makes the story so hard to adapt is because despite the fact that the characters are moving forward, the environment never changes. So once you're in the desert, you're pretty much in the desert for the entire movie. Like once that part happens, like once they once House Atreides is betrayed and they're and the main characters are in the desert, well now we're in the desert and that's where we're going to be for the rest of the movie. Yes. Now I haven't read the actual novel, but what I do find interesting about this film is it's a very masculine film, a very masculine world. I'm talking about like everything from like the look of it, the sets, you know, we have helicopters that look like dragonflies. You know what I mean? The the sound design, the soundtrack. But yet, it seems like a very feminist film at the same time. I, that's what I was going to okay, say. Thank you. I'm not the only one that thinks that. Well, no, because the the most powerful society in the entire universe is all is made up of all women, and Paul was the first man. 
to join them. Well, it's almost like an accidental men's rights movie because the <laughs> because the it's like as soon as a man it's, it's shows like up, they they, they want uh, they yeah. want a woman and they're 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 doing all this processing and selection and uh, and hoping for for more women to join their order, but instead uh, it's a boy a boy uh, gums up the works and uh, well the chosen the chosen one, one and it ends one... up being the one to uh, to show them all how it's done. That's why. That's why. The, but that's why the the uh, supreme mother or whatever I can't remember what she's called. Charlotte Rampling. Charlotte motherfucking Rampling. No, but the what I can't remember what her title is. She's Charlotte Rampling. Um, Who cares? She is. That's why she gives the her Reverend Mother. Yeah, the Reverend Mother. That's why the Reverend Mother gives um, Lady Jessica such a hard time about Paul mm-hmm. because she thinks she was arrogant to even have a boy because to to even have a boy is basically saying like i think my son is going to be the messiah as far as their beliefs go yeah, that's I, why she's so and that's why she's so hard on paul with the box and everything because she doesn't think he's the messiah well and i think that's sort of the most the most uh, that points to the most challenging aspect of this material i think the most alienating which is that paul's mother jessica played by rebecca, rebecca ferguson she seems to be so single-minded in her pursuit of this messiah uh, um, concept that like Paul's personhood is kind of secondary, even though like, you know, clearly there's affection and that, all that. Um, but that is the key thing. Yeah. Like, and that's I, what makes the, the book so much more interesting is they, they dive into that. Yeah. And I think the movie kind of fudges that um, by sort of just trying to have its cake and eat it too. I'm not sure it's it. I, I, additional viewings might make me feel differently about that, but I, I think that's both the most challenging and sort of the most interesting aspect of their relationship, which it's kind of tough to keep track of because the movie doesn't kind of kind of keeps her at arm's length, uh, basically mm-hmm. the whole. Well, time. see, it's it's ironic because both of his parents are trying to make him into something essentially, and you would think the one who's going to be the mo the more forceful about it is his dad, because he's literally going to inherit the house one day. But it's actually his mom who's been working from behind the scenes the entire time to make him into this thing without him knowing like the entire point of his birth is for him to become this thing like the something that's not really human anymore something that's sort of above human which again game of thrones totally hello remember the three-eyed raven yeah it's basically what paul is becoming yeah I mean, this is basically Game of Thrones without as many houses set in space. Like I said, Game of Thrones and Star Wars wouldn't exist without this story, period. And, you know, there's no incest, but I, that's not going to stop the, uh, the fan fiction community, I'll tell you that. Uh, we do have to take a quick break uh, because we've got some questions to ask. But is there anything, uh, any burning remarks we got to make before we do that? Well, sorry, I just wanted to, like, earlier I was kind of, like, going on a thing. All I want to say is that basically whether this movie will be seen as a a success or a failure will depend on how good the second is. Absolutely. Because this is basically half a film. If the other half is really, really good, then the legacy of this movie will be great. But if the second half drops the ball then this movie's legacy is going to go in the toilet. Uh, yeah, I have faith that the second movie is going to be fantastic because I think the better moments of the story come in the second half of the film. And I think he's already made the first movie. So he already has been through all of the hard challenges in terms of like special effects, getting his cast and crew 
you know, et cetera, et cetera, he's already set and ready to make the second film. So I think it's going to be fantastic. There's also a TV series in the works for HBO Max. I do not think anyone involved in this movie is part of the TV series, but they're clearly making this their own kind of like Star Wars for HBO. You know what I'm saying? And I just want to quickly say before we go to break, I want to push back on what Simon said. I don't think <laughs> like you might not like some of his movies, but I don't think he's made a bad movie. That's what Maelstrom. Okay. Maelstrom is, I think his best movie. It's it's uh, mind you, I haven't seen his first two, but I think they're short films, but I'm going, I'm going all the way back to Maelstrom 2000, you know, from Polytechnique to Anstanzi to prisoners to enemy enemy, by the way, is probably my second favorite. Amazing. I love love enemy. enemy. So Cronenberg, so like low key sci-fi, amazing. Sicaro. I think Rivals is best movie personally, but yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, Blade Runner is maybe my least favorite, but I don't know. I, I think this guy's batting average is as as high as you can get. And I remember once on the podcast, I said that John Carpenter had the best run for any genre filmmaker. When you look at his making of Halloween all the way up to In the Mouth of Madness, like the movies he made from in between those movies, including those movies, was incredible. And I'm looking at this dude's filmography, and they're all genre films. And I think he's outdone John Carpenter for American oh, don't filmmakers. Say that. Come on. Come on. He also, he's not American. He's Canadian. He's a Canadian. North American. Yeah. When I say American, I'm thinking North American. Yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm excluding right, well, Mario I... Bava in Europe. All right, well, I think that's complete blasphemy, but I, I, look, I don't hate the guy. Uh, I think that he's a solid craftsman uh, who is very good at knowing his audience, like I said, and is a great, uh, I think, uh, a, a very good technician. I just don't think his, his movies don't always resonate with me personally. I actually think Dune is one of his better movies. Um, I'm actually, I, 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 I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast before, but I did some extra work for Polytechnique, but I've never actually seen it. Um, oh, it's a good movie. So I might, uh, I'm not going to watch it anyway. Um, I, think, I think Justine said that you're actually in the background. We can see you in a shot. Oh, did she say that? I don't, I'm pretty sure she said it on, on a podcast once. Yes. I think she said, Howell if you see Howell. <laughs> His name is pronounced Timothy Chalamet, right? It's, it's pronounced Tim Swiss That's, that's how I call it. <laughs> Speaking of Canada. Uh, all right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to answer our regular round of questions, this time about Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve. Here's another clip. Uh, guess I'm not in the mood today. Mood? Yeah. What's mood to do with it? You fight when the necessity arises, no matter the mood. Now fight! you found the mood you're back on sordid cinema that was a clip from dune gentlemen and let's start with ricky here what was your favorite scene in denis villeneuve's dune i kind of already mentioned my favorite scene it's when paul realizes that there's a tiny metal insect looks like a spider floating towards him in his private chamber it's called a hunter seeker and it's there to assassinate him i love that scene that's the scene 
like okay if i if you didn't tell me who directed this movie and i was watching the movie i would start thinking denny the Neuve because of blade runner and like the you know the cinematography and the deserts and the color palette and everything but once i saw this scene i would be like that's got to be denny Villeneuve. he's got this thing for like spiders and in terms of like his trademarks his visual trademarks and things that he includes in his movie and what his movies are about thematically etc cetera, etc cetera, there's a lot in this movie that's all denny Villeneuve, and that to me is like the classic denny the Neuve scene maybe not the best but my favorite all right mike dune expert how about you for me, it's hands down, it is the fall of House Atreides. Because I think that is the story, the part of the story where, like, when you're reading the book, I don't know if you guys had the same um, reaction watching the movie, but for me, reading the book, that's when I got hooked. Because I thought this book was about, you know, this, this how, like, you know, House Atreides comes to the, to the new planet and they have to, like, work to adapt and yada, yada, yada and take over this new kingdom. But when they get fucked, like that is the point where the whole entire story turns into a different kind of story. That reminded me of the last episode of Game of Thrones. Yeah, so like that's like that's where the entire story turns because you think these are the people who are in charge, and then they instantly get fucked. And like you're talking about like when they raid the headquarters and they kill everyone, kidnap Paul. I'm talking specifically, I'm talking about the firebombing. From the sky and the Empire, um, the the I can't remember what the Empire warriors have a special name, but when they invade and the fighting and Duncan Idaho falls, that whole part of the book is such a like you don't see that coming. Like you know that there's that House Harkonnen is planning something with the Empire, but you don't know how drastic it's gonna be. And then like House Atreides gets fucked and almost everybody dies or disappears. I did not notice any guns in this film. No, they have laser guns. See, this is like, this is like the, that's what makes the world of Dune so interesting is that like, it's very lived in. Like I said, there's already been two apocalypses and that's why shield technology exists. That's why um, nuclear weapons are banned. That's why computers are banned. So, so the reason why I ask is because it's all hand to hand combat so they don't use guns but when we get to that scene we do see these gigantic spaceships that do shoot out these laser beams that destroy everything in sight so because those a shield can't block well actually a shield could block that but that's what the doctor that's the whole point of the doctor character is he was an infiltrator from the start and he disabled their shields so that's why they're able to destroy their but from my understanding the shields can stop anything that's moving fast but not slow or the reverse i can't remember which one it is it's vice versa maybe that's why they have to use weapons to break a shield if you have a shield on you it can't be broken with kinetic energy because kinetic energy will just cause an explosion but you can move through it if you move slow enough yes that's why hand-to-hand melee combat can break a shield eventually it's like it's like Eventually, the shield will fold under the impact. Of, right. Um, so because uh, the reason why I ask these questions, because that that scene, like I, I like the look and feel of the entire movie and I don't dislike that scene. But to me, it's the one scene that felt very Star Wars because of the lasers and the spaceships, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But anyway, to conclude why I like that scene is, is, is it's because that is to me, that is the point where that story, especially this part of the story, turns on a dime on that particular part because that's when the people who are at the top suddenly become the people who are at the bottom 
And that's the most interesting part of Dune is watching it's like I said, it's like the Starks. The Starks are at the top and then they go to the bottom and then they have to work the the ones who survive have to work their way back up. And that is the most interesting part of the journey is watching them fall. I think Drake made a song about that. <laughs> Probably he did. <laughs> Simon, what is your favorite scene? Uh, I have to say the, the the sequence that stood out the most on my first viewing was actually the uh, and I think it was just for the look and the quietude of it. Uh, but I actually really liked the the little the little quiet chunk of movie after Jessica and Paul escape uh, the fall of House Atreides and uh, are in the desert at night and basically are just like running around, making camp, uh, talking to each other. Paul's tripping out, thinking about the future, thinking about the past. Uh, it, there's nothing. This is not really other than obviously the Gamjabar stick your hand in the box scene it's not really a scene oriented film in the same way a star wars is where there's an obvious scene where a character makes a speech or one specific thing happens uh it's really more of a vibe oriented experience in my opinion um and that was the section of movie with the most interesting vibe i thought i am shocked no one picked what's the coolest scene it's when i don't know what you call them but they're really cool stormtroopers and they descend from the skies like ninjas yeah that's what i meant i can't remember what they're called but the empires the orcs have a special name and they're supposed to have us they're supposed to be um indifferent like they're supposed to not just join into conflicts like this but that's part of the deal the harkonnens made with the empire yeah, the sardaukai you're like is. um yeah sardaukai sardaukai yeah, that's what they're called i have to say this isn't this this isn't something i can put in stuff i would change because it's too specific but I don't think the movie did justice to them being exceptionally great because in the scenes that we do get, for instance, um, Jason Momoa fighting them and he's like, I've never, you know, when you fight them, they cut, it seems like everyone he fights just kind of goes down the same way, you know? Well, Duncan Idaho is supposed to be like the world's biggest badass in this universe or whatever. So that's part of it. But um, that's what, that's what becomes interesting. Well, I don't know if that, I can't remember how much of that comes into this movie, but when eventually when the Fremen come into conflict with those, with those, you know, super elite stormtroopers or whatever, that's part of what makes it interesting is because like, like they're an unstoppable force. It's sort it becomes sort of like um, U.S. versus Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, you, the U.S. army is an unstoppable force, assuming, uh, even army, playing assuming field. the war. Yeah. Assuming the war is fought on the U.S. army's terms. But once the, once the war is fought on different terms, then the U.S. Army maybe isn't as great as you thought they were because, you know, they lost to Vietnam, a tiny nation with way less, you know, that's sort of what becomes what the Fremen. So you, you mentioned that. Um, forgive me for not knowing this. Was this a book written after Vietnam? Vietnam would have just been starting or hadn't started. Yet. Okay. I believe Vietnam started in 63. Am I crazy? I can't remember. I'm not Googling right now. I think it was early, early 60s. Imperialism was definitely in the air. I think it's safe to say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, fair enough. When is imperialism not in the air, to be fair? Uh, Mike, you can change one thing about Dune, uh, and it can't be to make it a whole movie because we've already talked enough about that. Uh, So what would you change? I think what you I like if I could change one thing, I would just try to make the end feel more like an end to a movie. Mm -hmm. Because I would say anyone you talk to, like I said, no matter how much you like this movie, when the credits come. I don't think anyone was like, okay, that feels like the natural end to this movie. Like I said, I get why 
they made that choice because there's a time jump that happens after that. But I don't know how successful. And I got to mention also that um, Denny Villeneuve has been saying that the second movie is going to be seen from Zendaya's point of view, the Cheyenne character. Shawnee. And I don't really... Oh, Shawnee, excuse me, Shawnee. The Shawnee character. And I'm not really sure how that's going to work. And that's sort of why I'm worried about the second movie, because that's not how the story is told Ooh, in the book. Lots of male gazing. Look yeah. at pretty, well, yeah. pretty Paul. And I'm, and I'm fine. Like, I don't know. I just like, I'm fine with him doing that. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not worried about that, but I'm wor- What I'm worried about is like changing the way the story is told because Shawnee is a big character in the book, but she's like probably the, third or fifth main character well i guess we'll have to wait and see uh ricky what would yeah. you change uh you can pick the ending if you like but it'd be more fun if you pick something else now people are gonna think i'm crazy and i haven't read the book and i do not know what's gonna happen in the second movie so maybe this would be a stupid thing to change but i would have his mom die instead of duncan and keep duncan in the story because i feel like the relationship between duncan and paul is far more fun and far more enjoyable far more interesting to watch than paul and his mom i mean like honestly do you want to go on a buddy buddy road trip with your best friend and his mom or your best friend you know what i mean? think like, you just Rick, nailed i think you've just nailed why i like that it's his mom because it's so weird and it's so no do you it's so like weird it's also like it i guess it brings in the star the, the star wars requirement to have some incest vibes somewhere but yes um, i don't know i just think i think that's actually more but- compelling I don't need to see more buddy buddy, uh, uh, you know, adventures in space. The the sound you're hearing is all the Dune fans coming for you with pitchforks. Oh, because if they killed, yeah, if they killed, if they killed Lady Jessica off instead of Duncan Idaho, holy cow! They (laughs) you because of the way the story goes, you can't, you can't. But but that's what I'm saying. I, I I say this knowing that I do not know where the story is headed. I haven't read the book. I you asked me this question in a year from now when I've watched a second movie and I'll completely change my mind. I'm just saying that based on what we said before the break, the movie could have used a bit more, and I don't want it to be hokey pokey or campy like star Wars, but bring a bit more life into it. And I, I, your, 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 your point is valid, Simon. Like it is nice to have a movie that's so different and unlike most of what we get from Hollywood. But I think the whole entire movie is like that. Like, I think there's only two scenes in which I rolled my eyes. I was like, damn, that does not belong in a movie. It feels so Hollywood. And one scene, for example, is when they enter the underground base, the enemies, and that this is the scene in which Duncan dies because he just can't fight them all off. And he closes a door. One of the characters responds, he locked the door. It's like, yeah, we fucking know he locked the door. Like, why is that? (laughs) Like, why are you telling the audience that he locked the door? Like, there's only two scenes. They're very, very short. We're talking about like the last, like about like, two three seconds each in the entire movie where i felt it was very like cliche like tropey and hollywood like um i I, can i i'm just going to mention i'm going to stay away from the ending because we've already talked about it enough things i would change or that i think could have been improved upon i don't think they nailed the combat uh the the shield effect uh that is going on with the combat and the slow knives i didn't find it super compelling to watch i have to say uh, Again, that's a huge. That's why this movie is like this story is so hard to adapt, especially yeah. like when they were trying to do it like back in the day. 
with the special effects. Like, how do you make a giant worm? How do you make a shield? Well, the giant how worm you... looks fantastic. Yeah, they nailed the giant. Yeah, worm. Yeah, but I'm talking about I'm talking about back then though. Yeah, like, that's why the the story has been so hard. But to adapt. the idea behind the combat is they're moving so fast that technically we would not be able to see it with our you know with, like at all. Like it's moving so fast, it's sort of like time travel, right? So like to put that in screen, you have to slow it down clearly, and therefore it's not as exciting to watch because having hand-to-hand combat in slow motion isn't as exciting as watching like Jet Li kick like a bunch of people's asses. Well, it's the shield. The shield thing is that's the whole point of the shield is that like, I don't know. That's what, again, that's part of what makes this. Oh, you know what? Actually, Mike, Mike, you want Dune fans to be annoyed Here's Here's, I'm going to annoy them a lot. I actually think if instead of slow knives, it had been some kind of like wire foo instead, that would have been a way more fun movie. It might have been, to be honest. I mean, come on, you get again. Right? That's part of that. That that should have been something. The story is hard to adapt. Really hard, really hard to adapt. Yeah, just throw some wire food and in I, there. So, what you would change is you would change the the, the way they actually went about filming the hand to hand combat. Like you would add I, in like a new fight choreographer. I I would no. I would have a new fight concept because the whole reason it's rendered like that is because of how they've decided they've decided to faithfully, as I understand it, adapt the the combat style from the book, which I think maybe was a mistake. I think maybe they should have just invented a new combat style. Anyone listening to this podcast that's a hardcore Dune fan hates us right now. You know what? When we started this episode, we were doomed to fail. <laughs> uh, that's one small thing I would change. The other small thing I would change is I kept yelling at my screen during the not-so-great climactic uh, sword fight because and I can't be the only one who who thought this. Uh, if you're going to get into a sword fight with a master sword fighter or whatever and, like, hope to live and, like, predicted to die, get your fucking hair in a bun or something. It's in front of your eyes, man. You can't see shit. Oh, but he looks so good. What are you talking about? That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say, but but Simon, he looks so. He looks great, and I understand that later (laughs) the hair in his eyes won't matter. But for now, I always think he's God. This is really not great sword tactics. Get a haircut. That's all I without that. That's no, 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 no. His hair is fantastic. You can't cut his hair. His hair is fantastic, but it's bad for sword fighting. I will, I will die on this hill. Anyway, that's all I was gonna change. Um, I mean, there's other stuff, but we're not gonna. We're no, we're gonna be here all day. All right. Uh, sorry, someone has something to say. I, I just have a special mention. I just yeah. like the scene in which he comes face to face with the giant sandworm. And he thinks that the sandworm stops because of the thumper. But we all know the sandworm stops because he's so sexy. If this dude rides a sand... I, I remember he used to always say this on the Game of Thrones podcast. I was like, if she rides a dragon and eventually happened at the very last episode. But I was like, if this dude rides a sandworm the way Daenerys was riding the dragon in the last season i'm gonna like lose my mind spoilers oh yeah, sorry I, I mean i'm assuming everyone's watched game of thrones by now come on no i mean spoilers it's gonna happen what he's actually gonna ride that, the sandworm yeah yes, that's yeah, how right. he, that's how, are you for real that's how he becomes the fremen every fremen leader yeah. has to learn how to ride a sandworm that's oh, actually I, not, where... I swear to god i did not know this R- ricky i mean whatever who cares about Spoilers for a sixty-year-old. Wait, wait, wait! Don't um, spoil the, the second half of the movie for me. I I haven't read. The well, book. I don't. We. I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything that hasn't just been said. <laughs> I haven't even seen the David Lynch movie though. Okay. Well, all I'm going to say is uh, when this was announced as being done in two parts, I did see some people speculate that that's how this film would end. 
with uh, with Paul riding with, with Paul. Oh, riding that, board, but that would have been far. really cool. That would have been a better place to end it, absolutely, because it shows his mastery and that he's going to become one. Of yeah, them. but we don't see Paul go through that whole transformation in this movie. We only see it start to happen. Uh, anyway, we should move on to uh, who our MVP is in this film. Uh, Ricky, I'm going to start with you. Who's who is our most valuable player here? And I always encourage people to pick someone other than the uh, than the co- in this case co-writer director just just to be fun. But you know, you can if you need to. Wait, so you told me I'm not allowed to pick the, the director. I'm, so I'm encouraging not allowed... you not to. I'm encouraging you to get get creative. If I'm not allowed picking the director, I'm, not, I'm actually going to pick Greg Fraser, who's the cinematographer. Once again, he worked on Star Wars Rogue One, The Mandalorian. He's really talented. But he worked really closely with the director and the visual effects team. And what's Interesting about this film is it was actually shot in digital, even though he wanted to shoot on 35 millimeter. And the studio told Denis Villeneuve that he could shoot on whatever format he wanted. They said he got cap blanche to make this movie, which is why I think they always intended to make two movies because they said the guy could do whatever the fuck he wants to do. Um, so he Denis Villeneuve, the director, decided not to shoot on 35 millimeter, which I think would have been fantastic, but only because of where they were shooting. They were shooting in places like Dubai and Jordan. And uh, I don't know where else, like all around the world. Right. And he thought that it would have been too problematic to find some kind of like studio in the middle of like Jordan, for example, where they could watch dailies. So they shot it on digital. But the point is, the movie looks fantastic. And what I found really interesting is I was listening to an interview with the director and the cinematographer and Denis Villeneuve, the crazy French Canadian that he is. He wanted to shoot the movie in a four by three frame, which is like really weird because you're making this big cinematic like epic sci-fi adventure which is supposed to be released on imax screens and you're shooting in a box format for like old school tvs like that's weird so anyways what he decided to do was clearly they weren't going to shoot on a 4-3 cinematic um like ratio so the way he shoots the film is he keeps a lot of the character well actually all of the characters dead center and he says it's because he and the director didn't want them to be forgotten or have the backgrounds or the sets or whatever overpower these characters. He, he still wanted to focus specifically on characters like Paul, for example. And so they didn't want them to like feel too small in the landscape. So it's really interesting the way he shoots this movie and watching it again, like he's got, like he always keeps them center frame. And yet, you know, you have these like amazing like shots where you see like the desert, for example, like a shot when we see the giant worm and it approaches like Paul for the first time and they have like a stare down. Like shots like that, like I love the shot compositions. And this is like old school filmmaking in the sense that, yes, they shot it in digital, but they still built sets. They still went to Jordan. They went to Ubai, with Abu Dhabi. They went to Abu Norway. Dhabi. They, Abu Dhabi. They went to Norway. They went to Hungary. Uh, Hungary. They went all over the world, right? Uh, mostly the same places where he shot Blade Runner 2049, which I'm sure helped him because he already had connections and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I feel like it's old school. Like it wasn't what I'm trying to say here is that it wasn't made in a set. Like here in Montreal, we have that, you know, that enormous Mel, yeah. uh, um, the, the Mel studios. It's like this enormous soundstage where they shoot like a big, you know, like uh, what's his name? The guy that did day of tomorrow and um, Michael Bay. No, uh, Roland Emmerich. He shoots all of his movies in Montreal on a soundstage and he's boring, right? This guy actually traveled the world kind of like game of Thrones, you know, built these sets, 
And the cinematographer really like, you know, because we always talk about this on the podcast, like how much say did the cinematographer have, how much, you know, influence did he have? Did he decide the shot compositions or did he just like set up the lights? He actually, you know, decided the shot compositions, he helped set up the lights and he had to work with the visual effects team because, you know, if you don't have good lighting, I don't care how good your visual effects people are. The visual effects are going to look terrible. You need that good lighting to match the visual effects. And so I think given the fact that everyone talks about how amazing the movie looks, like regardless if you like or dislike the movie, everyone agrees this movie looks amazing. Like it, it looks like on, it looks like it's on another level compared to most Hollywood sci-fi epics. Like, you know, be it star Wars or like the Marvel films, it feels and looks different. And I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, I don't think that's a bad choice at all. Um, I, I'm going to surprise myself a little bit by uh, giving it to Swishelle himself, uh, because I think the screenplay does not give uh, you, you mentioned the stoicism of the characters, Mike. And I think that there there really are only a few characters who are prone to uh, to monologuing. Most of that happens at the start. And it's basically never uh, young Paul who mostly just looks at stuff and feels things and internalizes it and trips out. And I think a, a lot of that has to be communicated via, I, I wasn't, I really wasn't sure about the casting of Chalamet as this, you know, uh, intergalactic savior figure. I thought that was a little weird to be honest. Um, but then I think it really works in this movie because he has this uh, Disney princess uh, face that is just so emotive uh even when he's not speaking. And I, I think he, an emotive in, in this, uh, in this sensitive way that is not typical of, uh, of, I guess, uh, figures who are positioned leading men, le- leading men, but especially leading, uh, sci-fi savior dudes. Like he's not Chris Pratt yeah. in, uh, the tomorrow war, obviously it's a very, di- he cuts a very different sort of figure. That's part of Timothy Chalamet's appeal is that he's, what would you call it? What's the word? Androgynous. He's a very androgynous, actor he has sort of this like male female synergy like tilda swinton you know see i I don't think so i think it's the way he moves it's he's eccentric to some degree but it's he's unique like he's very different but i I wouldn't say androgynous like i don't i can't think of a movie where he felt that way i just think he looks like he could easily i he, he has such an innocent face and so he's not masculine you know that's what i mean when i say that he's not he doesn't have like and that's what Simon said. Traditionally I, I least, masculine, least, perhaps. And that's yeah, that's what, what I what I meant to say. Yeah, and I think that's what Simon's saying is that he's not he doesn't have the traditional masculine features that you would associate with a hero in this type of like giant, huge budget AAA franchise. I agree. He's very unlike most actors ever. You know, I'm pretty sure if we think hard enough, we're going to think of guys who are very much like Timothy Chalamet. Mm-hmm. But I, I still think he's very masculine. Like I, like you know, like I mean, I could see the guy doing drag if that, that's what you mean, looking good in drag and in a dress. That's yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Is he could he could easily if uh... if, if if a role called for him to turn into. A very feminine figure he could easily do that if uh if they make a new uh if if they make a new to wong fu movie they need to get timothy chalamet for sure yes, i was actually thinking absolutely. of um of uh, priscilla queen of the desert if throughout this movie he sort of is the queen of the desert again right yeah here. exactly 
There you go. It's that's your next casting for you. Um, Mike, who's your MVP? Just because I don't want to be boring and pick Denny Villeneuve, because obviously, like this whole he's he's Atlas carrying this entire movie on his back, essentially. So, like, if there's going to be a person, it's him. But just to not pick him, I'm going to pick um, Stellan Skarsgård as Baron. Thank you. Finally, we get to talk about this, dude. Let's talk about him. Because he is he is so hungry. Stellan Skarsgård came to set. He hadn't eaten in days. Oh, he was hungry. And he's just, om nom nom, chewing on that scenery. <laughs> Everywhere he goes, he's just chewing on it. actually a scene where he's, like, chewing on, like, I don't know, like a chicken leg or something. Yeah, like that is like he is that when we talk about how like most of the characters are very stoic in this movie, not him. He's here to eat. But I, I like a lot of people. I hate. See, this is what I mean about how critics drive me nuts. Like they criticize his performance. Like his performance is fantastic. No, he's great. He's amazing. He's... It's because it's like it's like people like ah oh, man. I don't want to go on a big rant about critics, but I feel like everyone plays follow the leader. You have one person who doesn't know what to say about the movie, so they just absolutely like they all. It's like the same line that's repeated in every freaking film review. It's like when they talk about a villain, be it him or the guy from James Bond or the guy from like Marvel. It's like the villain is over the top. He's chewing the scenery. It's blah, blah, blah. Like it's all, it's like screw that man. This is the kind of villain that he is. No one was saying that way back in the day when they were reviewing star Wars and they saw Darth Vader for the first time. You know what I mean? Well, Look, I, I think I the, was... the, the weakness here is it's not hit the performance. I think his performance is really fun. I think the problem is that it does feel like sort of a weird combination of every star Wars villain. Like he's, <laughs> Works for the, you know, he's always talking about the emperor and he lives in a vat and he's grotesque and you kind of get this. He's, you know, he's, he's like, he's like a mix of Jabba the Hutt and Darth Vader is what he is. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred well, percent. Again, that's a super cool thing that they don't really explain here is that in the future, if you want to be a big fat asshole, you could be a big fat asshole because you can have a gravity machine that floats you around. And that's what he has is that he's like. In the book, he's like 500 pounds. Wait, he has a machine? It's not like some kind of like special ability? No, that's a machine oh. that he has. Because, like I said, like, there's certain things that they don't really explain. He's basically just a big fat asshole. But instead of like, you know, having to being stuck in his bed, like a normal person would be if they're just like, like grossly overweight. He has a special machine that makes it so he can like move around like a normal person would. Well, the by the scene way, when he floats for the first time, I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. Like it's just, it's, it's, that is this kind that is a type of scene that can be iconic, like for future generations or this generation growing up. And they remember this movie as one of the big, huge sci-fi films they saw when they were younger. And in 20 years time, they reflect on that scene when, you know, like that scene is, I think it is, some ways like the best scene in the honestly that's like the best scene of the david lynch version too because david lynch really dives into how disturbed of a character like you guys haven't seen how disturbed of a character baron arkin really is but if you if you watch the first five minutes of the david lynch movie you'll see how disturbed this character really is um Baron Harkonnen is a deeply, deeply again, like that's where I say the Game of Thrones thing. Cause game like this character is not just like a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Like he's a horrible person. To quickly go back on the US politics and when the book was actually written, I just noticed that the character's name is Vladimir, so he's Russian. 
Yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm sure if if we dig into the uh, uh, into how Herbert was inspired by real life politics, it's probably going to go to some weird places. Frank so. Herbert was literally this entire thing is like it's the ultimate thing where like that's what's so hard to parse out about. He, he was like talking about um, male female politics. He was talking about psychedelics and like drugs, how they're used in society, how societies form, politics war it's like everything it's one of those movies it's very much like 2001 where it's like yeah this movie is about everything 2001 does have a lot of dark comedy though no but in in terms of like what 2001 is trying to do it's 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 the movie that's about everything in terms of humanity and existence and life and death and everything you know well before we move on i just want to quickly say i'm offended by this movie because why is it a the fat person is always the villain. You know what? You're not wrong in the sense that th- that was, I did kind of roll my eyes when we have the, and I think this is honestly what, where critics are coming from is when you do have that first reveal of the bear, it's like, okay, I've seen this guy before. I don't think that, I don't think that's, that's, that's by in no way to impugn Stellan Skarsgård, who I think gives a, a great villain performance. Um, like you said, Mike, he is absolutely devouring scenery. Let's, let's wrap things up with one last question, which is, uh, we're, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll once again indulge uh, indulge the whims and uh, and submit the, and subject this movie to the Howard Hawks test. Does it in fact contain three great scenes and no bad ones? I don't think Dune has any bad scenes, really. Okay, but I don't think it has three great scenes. It has a lot of good scenes. I think there's only one, maybe two great scenes, and I think those are even with an asterisk. Like again, I think those will. Whether how successful this movie is really hinges on the next one. So I can't like the only great scene to me is the one when there's fire raining down from the sky and House of Trades falls to its fucking knees because that's just amazing storytelling. This is why I do like the question, Simon, because we spend an hour and a half talking about the movie and we start remembering all of these things and scenes and lines and dialogue and whatever. And I'm going to agree with Mike. I think the movie has no, what I would call bad scenes, but I, I think it has three great scenes because, you know, Mike, you just mentioned the raid on the house. I, I, yeah. I just, I just mentioned the whole scene in which the Baron floats into the air. And I thought that was a great scene, a very short scene, but I thought it's like, again, one of those scenes you're going to remember. It's intriguing. It gets certainly intriguing. And you could even say it's iconic. I just, I don't know if it's great, but again, it's also, it's all subjective though, right? Well, in my opinion, I think it's a great scene because of the way it's shot, the lighting, the, can- the, 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 you know, the compositions, the, the way it's staged, like the actual, I don't know if it was an effect, like practical or done in, in, on the, on the computer. I thought it looked great. And the the third grade scene is the scene I mentioned, which is my favorite scene. Like, uh, I think, you know, how many times have we seen like these big, huge Marvel movies where you have like some kind of assassin? It turns like this big like foot chase and it's really boring. It's just like a bunch of laser shoot. Like, you know what I mean? Like they find clever ways to, in this case, find a way to assassinate Paul by using this little like metallic insect. I think that's a great scene. And I'm pretty sure there is. Well, and the last thing I'm going to mention is a scene when Paul comes face to face with the giant sandworm again great scene uh i don't think the movie has any great scenes i would i agree with mike about that i think it has a bunch of fun scenes that are a lot like a lot of other scenes i've seen in other films i mean even mike uh, even uh, mike even paul facing down the worm is i don't know very much akin to uh every scene of uh 
uh john i mean every king kong movie where where someone faces king kong and they have a moment somebody uh, every- stops and turns around and looks at something way bigger than them and is like oh my god this thing's huge yeah like and don't get me wrong it's a good version of that scene but it wasn't like a transcendent one you know what i mean can i ask you guys one last question just sure. to round it off to five we just need to talk about the score before we wrap up the podcast because i think Hans zimmer is extremely talented and i think at times the score is unbelievable but i think at times it overpowers the film and i do appreciate the fact that he created new instruments and defined and created new sounds for the score and he worked with so many talented people around the world and a lot of the score had to be done virtually using like skype and like the way he went about making this the 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 score during a pandemic is is something to like uh praise right but i kind of felt at the same time like you know, like I like the bagpipes, for example, but at times I felt the score really overpowered the film. I the, the my I barely noticed it to be honest. A lot of the time, uh, I noticed the bagpipes for sure. Uh, that was one of the few times where I, I was really thinking about the score. My main takeaway from the score, honestly, is that I feel like collectively, com- film composers have kind of given up on the idea of having a memorable melody in a score to the point that the only the only scene in this film that really where i really noticed anything happening in the melody was uh actually just the bit that sounds like the wonder woman theme and i th- i think you do know what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah see i mean i think that's the part of the problem is like hans zimmer is known to be like this he's one of the most prolific composers in all of film and if you just think even within the last 10 years he did man of steel and uh God, another really big iconic one. I just had it in my head. He's, I mean, he's done loads. But movies, but he, but the point is, oh, Inception. That was going to be the other yeah. one. Hans Zimmer generally has these really iconic themes in his movies, and I was waiting for one to come, and there was literally never a moment in watching Dune. Like I remember, like I have Spotify Premium, like probably millions of other people listening to this would have but i never had i never again i like hans zimmer's music but i never even had the inclination to download and listen to the to the soundtrack the um yeah it seems like it's almost more of a it seems like in general the blockbuster mode of of scoring has moved much more towards designing and blaring out cool sounds rather than uh trying to come up with uh with you know melodic themes that stick in your mind which is not not even necessarily a bad thing i just think that's where things are right now it it does feel like i think we can all agree it it is missing kind of it's i think it's missing its own original motif uh and hopefully that could emerge in, in the second film perhaps so that's just about it from us uh here at sorted cinema uh ricky where can people find you and the podcast online you can find a podcast over at sortedcinema.com. It should redirect you to the main site, which is Goomastomp. Um, sortedcinema.com, Twitter, it's Sorted Cinema. And I think, Mike, you're also on Twitter? Yes, on Twitter, you can find me at Mike Warby's Tangents. That's not true. My real um, my real Twitter is Gameskeeper Mike. All right. And uh, that's about it from us this week. Uh, thank you for joining us next week. I'm not sure what we're talking about yet. I have some ideas. Uh, we will we will bandy them about and uh, you'll hear from us in due time. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in about a week.
Lord Baron. Raba. The last of our ships have left Arrakis. It's done. Very good. Uncle, how can we let this happen? How can the Emperor... Take everything we've built and give it to that Duke! How? Don't be too sure it's an act of love. What does he mean? Man has a gift, not a gift. The traitor's voice is rising. And the Emperor is a jealous man. A dangerous, jealous man. 